On this episode of the Blue Jacketeer podcast, we'll be covering chapter 12 of the Carmen Manual. Welcome to the Blue Jacketeer podcast, where we help you prepare for the Navy-wide advancement exam by covering study material created by highly qualified sailors. Learn more about what we have to offer at www.bluejacketeer.com. Welcome back to the BlueJacketeer.com podcast for hospital corpsmen. I'm Taylor Larson, and I'll be walking you through this chapter of the Corman Manual. Here at Blue Jacketeer, we aim to bring you the tools you need to be successful on the Navy-wide advancement exam. On this episode, we will continue with the hospital corpsman manual covering chapter 12. Be sure to pay attention, because on the next episode, you'll be quizzed on what you learned today. Without further delay, let's get started. Sit back, relax, and listen up. This is Chapter 12 of the Hospital Corman Manual, Inpatient Care. Alright, I'd like to start this podcast with a quick preface. For the sake of time, I'm going to be cutting out a lot of the sort of fluff text that's inside this chapter. So we're going to cut right to the knowledge content. We're going to be covering a lot of potential test questions here in a fairly short amount of time, so be sure to pay attention. Okay, let's get started. Laboratory tests are typically a significant part of an inpatient stay. There's a lot of times when we're called on to perform the task or at a minimum assist. The implication here is that you need to be knowledgeable about what exactly the patient will be going through so you can communicate it to them and they can be more comfortable and cooperative. With that, here are the steps to collecting a specimen. First, wash your hands and identify the correct patient. Next, collect the right type and amount at the right time. Any of this sound familiar? Six rights, anyone? Place it in the correct container and then label it. Afterwards, if you have one, finish the laboratory request form and always finish by documenting the collection in the actual patient record. So we talked about labs. Next is medications. This is a big deal, especially with inpatient, and most of us know why. To keep it short, the patient's recovery typically depends on the correct meds at the correct dose at the correct time. Once again, since this is so important and since no one is expected to know everything about each medication that exists, you can always refer to the physician's desk reference, the nursing drug handbook, and your hospital-specific formulary. Now, it's your responsibility to use a reference material, even if that just means the providers that you work with if you're unclear or have any questions or doubts about a medication order. Next, we have fluid and diet therapy. Again, this is inpatient, so make sure that as you're visualizing the things that I'm talking about, that's where your mindset is and where you're imagining the things that I'm talking about happening. So fluid and diet therapy, they're often conducted in inpatient settings. When a patient is on a specific type of diet, it is key to remember that it is not only adhered to, but measured and documented to the best of your ability. This goes from everything to nasogastric tubes to heart-healthy or clear liquid diets. Again, if you're unsure, ask a nurse or another provider around for direction or advice. Next, we have rest. This is always a big component of recovery, even outside the inpatient or hospital setting. But when rest becomes excessive, it can bring complications with it. Some of these are blood clots, pneumonia, GI issues, UTIs, atrophy, psychological problems. Just make sure to be aware of these issues and be an advocate for your patient. 
a doctor, for all the money that they get paid, may not necessarily be thinking of a patient's comfort to this degree. So speak up if you believe that it would be safe and conducive for your patient's recovery to sit up in a chair or even engage in some assisted walking exercises. Even that small amount of movement and those positional changes, like with sitting in the chair, that can do wonders for their recovery. So a preoperative patient has a few additional things to keep in mind, but cutting straight to the content, again, will address some easy test questions. If you don't know what the SF-22 is off the top of your head, it's time to get on our website and study this chapter. The SF-22, it's the request for administration of anesthesia and for performance of operations and other procedures. Now, I know that was a long title. Just try and remember the request for administration of anesthesia part. Three signatures are required on this document. The physician, the patient, and a staff member who's not involved in the procedure. That's key. If the patient is under 18, though, you could get the signature of a parent or guardian in their stead But if the patient is married or in the armed forces, you don't have to do that. They can just sign it themselves. So that was pre-op. Next, we have operative. Go figure. The operative phase starts the moment the patient is in the OR. Positioning and anesthesia are the two big things to keep in mind in this phase. So going over some of the positions that are commonly used and asked in the test... The lithotomy position is used for a vaginal hysterectomy, and the dorsal recumbent position is used for a hernia repair. So operative, we're going to be talking about anesthesia. That should be clear. So there are two major classifications of anesthesia. There's regional and general. Regional reduces all pain sensations in a specific area of the body without causing unconsciousness. So let's go over some versions of that. There's topical which is given, well, topically, and you'll apply it to a small area of the body. It only lasts for a short time. Local blocks are subcutaneous injections of a small area with a desensitizing agent. This will last a little longer than topical, but still, it's not going to last for hours or anything like that. Nerve blocks, most of you are probably familiar with, especially if you were on a ship or with the Marines. So nerve blocks are injections into the region of a nerve trunk. A division of this is called the digital block. Like I said, you're probably familiar, which is specific to fingers or toes. This is the most common type of anesthesia that corpsmen perform. Spinal anesthesia, we're elevating our uh, complexity here a little bit. Spinal anesthesia injects the agents into the subarachnoid space of the spinal canal. Again, spinal anesthesia injects the agent into the subarachnoid space of the spinal canal between the third and fourth lumbar space, or the fifth lumbar and first sacral. So we've gone over three types of regional. Again, there's regional and general. We've gone over three types of regional. We still have three more to go, so don't tune out yet. Try to listen and try to pick out key pieces of each that separate them from the ones that we've already reviewed. The epidural block is when the agent is ejected into the epidural space of the spinal canal. The saddle block is when the injection is placed into the dural sac at the third and fourth lumbar space. Again, saddle block, dural sac, third and fourth lumbar space. 
The saddle block blocks all impulses to and from the perennial area of the body. Last, we have the caudal block. This is injected into the sacral canal. The loss of sensation that results from this ranges from the umbilicus to the toes. All right, so take a breath. We're done with regional. I'd recommend going back and listening to that portion again. There's a lot of info, so it's chock full of potential questions. But before we get into general anesthesia stages, know that there's a really helpful chart on page 12, tack 6 in your Corman manual to help memorize some of the objective differences like pupil size, pulse, and blood pressure. So again, we're starting with general anesthesia. So there are four stages to this. The first stage is called induction. Some of the symptoms, the patient can feel dizzy. They can sort of have a sense of unreality. They'll have less sensitivity, though, to touch and pain. The patient's hearing will be increased now, so watch your mouths. And responses to noises are intensified here. So that was stage one. Stage two is called excitement. Uh, the main thing to keep in mind here is that vital signs will show the pulse as irregular and fast and blood pressure as high. It's called excitement because the patient may respond violently to very little stimulation here. Again, that's stage two, the excitement phase. Stage three is the operative stage. Now within stage three, and please don't get this mixed up. Again, we're talking about general anesthesia and the four stages. But stage three gets a little more complicated because there are four levels of consciousness. And I hope you didn't just roll your eyes. Yes, this is real and this can be on your test. So pay attention. There are four levels of consciousness within stage three. And which plane is optimal for the procedure is going to be up to the anesthetist. And each successive plane is achieved by increasing the concentration of agent in the tissue. So that finishes stage three. Stage four is the danger stage. You don't want them to get here. The pupils will stay dilated, whether you put your pen light in front of them or not. The pulse is weak and thready and the blood pressure is low. This person is getting critical really fast. Now, with all that said... The final recovery stage is not counted as one of the four stages of anesthesia, so don't get this mixed up. The recovery stage, though, begins at the completion of the operation and lasts until the patient has fully recovered from anesthesia. Okay, so we've gone over the preoperative and operative phase. Next, you could probably figure that we have the postoperative phase. This is focused on promoting positive recovery for the patient. A proper postoperative care plan will address respiratory, cardiovascular, and renal functions, uh, wound healing, rest and comfort, and preventing postoperative complications. Respiratory function is promoted by encouraging frequent coughing and deep breathing. A lot of facilities will use an incentive spirometer to help with this. Early movement and ambulation will also help. Cardiovascular function is assisted by frequent position changes and sometimes IV therapy. So if you've ever wondered why you have to rotate your patient every two hours, it's not just bed sores. Renal function is promoted by fluid intake, and nutritional status and elimination functions are also promoted by good fluid intake and a proper diet for the patient's health. 
Okay, next we have orthopedic patients. So these types of patients, even though this is inpatient, which kind of implies surgery or somebody being really sick, orthopedic patients are covered in this chapter because their treatment and recovery is right along the line of the post-surgical patient. When the orthopedic patient care plan is being formed, one thing needs to be the ultimate goal. That's rehabilitation. Some ortho patients will have actually mobilization as part of their care plans, such as casts. These are easy test questions that are coming up here. So the short arm cast extends from the base of the metacarpal phalangeal joints to one inch below the elbow. Generally, with this type of cast, the wrist will be placed in a neutral position with the fingers flexed so that they can still, even though they have a cast on, they can still have some sort of function. Long arm casts are very slightly different. They're basically the same, except the elbow is kept at 90 degrees, whereas with the short arm cast, it was free. And the cast ends two inches below the axilla or the armpit. So another easy test question, casts take 24 to 48 hours to completely dry, and it has to be protected while it sets. So when you're ready to remove a cast, there are two ways that you can do it. You can soak it in a vinegar water solution, or you can simply cut it. All right, we finally get to talk about canes, crutches, and wheelchairs. If you haven't seen these on the test, you either haven't taken one or you were sleeping while you took it. Just don't sleep while you listen to me review them, and I'll do my best to set you up for success. If you need help visualizing some of the canes and walkers that I talk about, the pictures for these start at page 12 tack 14 and go through 12 tack 22 in your Kerman manual. All right, so let's get into it. Canes can bear up to 25% of a patient's body weight. The most commonly used cane, most commonly used, three keywords for the test and when you're studying, right, is the C cane. The functional grip cane, this is a different cane, it provides a better grip and more balance for patients. Why that one isn't the most commonly used, I don't know. I don't make the decisions. Next, though, we have the quad cane. This is used for patients with hemiplasia. When you're first giving a patient a cane, especially if they've never used one before, you're going to have to do a lot of education. And the first part of giving a patient a cane is actually measuring it. So you want to make sure that when you're measuring the cane, the elbow is flexed from about 15 to 30 degrees. You're going to use the unaffected side to see if the distance reaches from the wrist to the floor. Make sure to remember that the phrase up with the good and down with the bad helps patients recall the step pattern for stairs or street curbs. That goes into the whole education idea like I mentioned. So that was canes. Now let's go over crutches. They're a little easier. There are really only two types of crutches. It gets complicated when you start talking about gates, but I'll walk you through that as well. So, like I said, there are two types of crutches, the axillary and forearm type. The axillary crutches are measured by making sure the tips are flat on the ground. Again, visualizing this, there's pictures in the Corman manual, but do what you can with tips flat on the ground and about six inches lateral to and six inches in front of the foot. So there should be a 45 degree line between the tip of the foot extending outwards, and that should be right along where the crutch is. 
The elbow should be able to be bent at about 20 to 30 degrees and there should be a two to three finger space at the top of the crutch between the top and the axilla. Forearm crutches are measured with the end in front of the foot by six inches. So directly in front of the foot, vice 45 degrees for crutches. The elbow here with forearm crutches should be bent about 15 to 30 degrees and the cuff will sit just under the elbow. So just a quick review because I threw some numbers at you. The cane and the forearm crutch are measured with the elbow bent 15 to 30 degrees. The axillary crutch is measured with the elbow bent at 20 to 30. There are only two types of crutches, but there are a lot of gates that the patients can use with them. Like I said, this is where it can kind of sort of get complicated. I'm going to make this as quick and simple as I can. The two-point gate is the least stable since only two points of contact are maintained. The three-point gate is used when one of the lower extremities can't bear weight. The four-point gate, but you didn't see that coming, is a slow and steady gate while three points of contact are maintained. So visualize this as Heisenberg's son from Breaking Bad. If you haven't watched that, catch up on it after the test. The four-point gate is for patients who have poor balance, coordination, or muscle weakness. We're halfway done with gates. Let's power through this, and that'll be the end. The swing-through gate places both crutches in front of the patient, and the feet are swung past the crutch placement. Again, past the crutches. The swing-to gate is similar, except that the feet are brought forward to meet the crutches. Last, we have the tripod crutch gate, which is similar to the swing to, except the crutches are moved one at a time. So, that about wraps up our notes for this podcast, so we will go ahead and conclude the lesson for chapter 12 of the Hospital Corman Manual. I hope that you were able to not only learn something, but also apply some of the information in this chapter that you just learned to your daily duties. Remember, at Blue Jacketeer, we bring you the very best in advancement exam preparation. So don't forget to listen to the audio quiz for this lesson to test yourself and see how good you are paying attention. Also, make sure to look for our next lesson where we'll be covering chapter 13 of the Hospital Corpsman Manual. As always, I'm Taylor Larson, reminding you to stay Navy and always keep working for that next rank. Thank you.